Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Welcome to another exciting adventure here on Southern Sense. We're broadcasting on SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, Block Talk Radio, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook. Ah, oh, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, courageous and colorful, Curtis C.S. <laughs> Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Hey, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this woman wanting Kavanaugh to go first and testifying. It's like it's like saying, okay, in a baseball game, you go ahead and bat, you know, swing first, and then I throw the pitch. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Doesn't make doesn't make sense. <laughs> oh man. But other well, than that, I'm going really- fine. Uh, well, don't unmute your don't mute yourself because the sound in the coming from your background where you are is perfectly fine. Well, I'm not getting any right. background noises, so stay stay open on your mic. Uh, we've got an exciting show coming up. Two great guests, Baruch Pletner. Uh He is uh, the editorial staff behind Czarism.com. Uh, what a fascinating man! He'll be calling in the first half of the show. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, all things Islam as well as what is going on uh, within the world. Uh, also, we're going to have returning to the show uh, the founder of UnderstandingTheThreat.com, John Guandolo. Um, it was a pleasure talking to him back in January when we inter- interviewed him face-to-face at the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention, and it's always fun to have him on the show he can only stay for half an hour, so it would be you and me, Curtis, and our listeners joining us at the last part of the show. So we're going to have a lot of fun here today, a lot to do, a lot to talk about. That's true. That said, I want to welcome those that are listening in on iTunes, I'm sorry, on, on Facebook and YouTube, where we have the live video going up there. Oh, it helps if I remember to uh, push the, the video on the proper feed. Uh, sorry about that. The staring at a symbol on the screen hey, instead of seeing the video. <laughs> it's been a long day. <laughs> oh, that it has. That it has. Um, those that listen to the show know that we do start off on a serious note. We start off with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going out to police officer Scotty Hamilton of the Pikeville Police Department in Kentucky, whose end of watch was Tuesday. March 13th of this year. And this is coming from several different sources as I 
pull up the information. And this is from Fallen Heroes. Pikeville Police Department Officer Scotty Hamilton, 35, was killed in the line of duty on Tuesday night, March 13, 2018, when he was shot in the head during an ambush. Police said that Officer Hamilton and Kentucky State Police Trooper Matt Martin were following up on a report of a vehicle theft at approximately 11.30 p.m. When they arrived at a residence in the Hurricane Creek area, WDRB reported. The pair spoke with individuals in a vehicle near the residence, then separated and began looking for an individual on foot, according to the Lexington Herald leader. Officer Hamilton began following what appeared to be fresh tracks in the snow, which led him to the back of a residence, WDRB reported. As he peered around the corner of the home, Officer Hamilton was shot at least once in the head. According to WSAZ, as many as three gunshots were heard. Trooper Martin rushed to the fallen hero's aid, but Officer Hamilton was pronounced dead at the scene. Four individuals in the area were arrested on unrelated charges, but Officer Hamilton's murderer escaped, KSP spokesman William Petrie told the Lexington Herald leader. Investigators continued to search for the unnamed shooter and deployed drones to aid their efforts. Many gathered along a Pikeville procession route on Wednesday afternoon as the officer's body passed beneath an American flag hoisted by a fire truck en route to the funeral home. Officer Hamilton, a 12-year veteran of the PPD, had been married to his wife, Chelsea, for five years, WDRB reported. He was also the father of a nine-month-old daughter, Rhinely, according to WKYT. Officer Hamilton loved his wife and child more than life itself, his friend Jason Eckers told the Lexington Herald leader. There's a strong bond with fellow law enforcement officers, regardless of what area you work in, Island Creek Fire Department Chief Randy Courtney told WYMT. We all face the same dangers, the same obstacles. It's a career that we've chosen. It's one of public service. Your heart really goes out to the officers in this kind of situation to his family, his co-workers, and his community. I know Officer Hamilton will be sorely missed. And this is from K105, and it reads, On Sunday, March 18th, thousands of people attended the funeral service for slain Pikeville Police Officer Scotty Hamilton. One of those in attendance was Litchfield Police Officer Keith Harrell. Hamilton was shot and killed the Tuesday prior while working with Kentucky State Police in an investigation. The man who allegedly murdered Hamilton, John Russell Hall, was captured on Thursday morning after an intense 36-hour manhunt. Hamilton, a 12-year veteran of the Pikesville Police Department, was only 35 and married with a small child. I was glad to see the show of support for a fallen brother, Harold said about Hamilton's funeral. After listening to the testimony of the victim's friends and co-workers, it was obvious the Pikesville Police Department lost a great officer and respected citizen in the community to the action of a coward. Litchfield Police Chief Brian Langdon said Harold approached him about attending the funeral 
and Chief Langdon was more than happy to accommodate Harold attending. We were glad to send someone to Pikeville because usually we don't have the resources available to do that, but it worked out where we could. Chief Langdon said, it means a lot to the community and family to see all the departments come together from the state and national level. If something were to happen here, it would also mean a lot to see those same officers travel the distance to come here and pay their respects. The the support is just overwhelming when you see something like that. Officer Harrell said, I am grateful to the Litchfield Police Department for supporting my trip. Chief Langdon was completely on board, making sure I had everything I needed for the journey. The funeral, attended by citizens and law enforcement officers from across the South, was a tribute not only to Hamilton's ability as a police officer, but more importantly, his dedication to his wife and small child. My prayers go out to Scott's family, Officer Harrell said. He was a devoted husband that loved his family above everything else. He was the proud father of a one-year-old baby girl. Everyone witnessed how the community came together at this time in need. Listen to each officer's story and see yourself the life of Scotty Hamilton. Today's show is dedicated to police officer Scotty Hamilton. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women who serve in our military, from the birth of our nation through today and into its future. We dedicate the show with the song by Todd Allen Herendon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power, but their vicious Todd Allen Harrington. My name is America. You can find that at ToddAllenShow.com. You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, oh, Facebook, YouTube, and half a dozen other places. I don't even remember where we're at. <laughs> oh, just check it out by going to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, Southern-Sense.com. Of course, I'm your hostess with the most, just the video chick, Annie, along with my courageous and colorful co-host of today and always, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, we've got a great guest sitting in on the line, and we've got a fantastic show lined up with him. So let's bring victim number one in on live. Let's, I don't know if I can get my cursor to move around on the computer screen the right way. There we go. Let's bring aboard Baruch Pletner. Good afternoon, Mr. Pletner. How are you doing? Hi, I'm very well. Thank you. All right. Can you hear me? Um, there is so much. Yes, we've got you loud and clear, loud and clear. Uh, you are, I've got some background noise, though, in there. Do you have a speaker on, or you want a speakerphone? No, I'm actually with a headset. Try without it. <laughs> well, then you won't be able to hear me, can you? Uh, I'll just, I can just use my phone as a regular phone, whatever, whatever works. If it's bad for you, I can try the other way. Yeah, let's, let's try that that way, because I'm hearing my voice in the background. How can you hear me now? I am perfectly fine. How are you doing? Um, you Great. are the editor of, of a fantastic website uh, called Czarism. Uh, and you went yes. into this with uh, our friend, L. Todd Wood, and he's the one that introduced the two of us together to bring you here today. Right. Tell us about this website. So Czarism is, is actually, I think, quite a unique uh, feature on, uh, on the American uh, media landscape. 
because it it has a a focus area which is um eastern europe uh the balkans and and the middle east but beyond that um i think what really sets it apart is that it looks at things uh, without a political agenda and really in depth there is a real i would say dearth of um in depth reporting especially from uh, some of these hotspots in the world in america and everything especially nowadays is just so amazingly and completely politically colored and biased so it's um you know which i guess is what we call fake news and um tsarism is uh, is is unique in 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 terms of its depth and in terms of its color blindness to politics in the analysis and news portion in the opinion portion uh, i guess uh, we could say that tsarism has a a traditionalist approach you know it, it's funny cuz um i'm married to uh, someone that was from Latvia, and you know, I'm right. constantly aware of what is going on. Um, I, I'm only second generation American, uh, so mm-hmm. I'm also keenly aware of what goes on around the world. But I'm finding that the media in the last couple of decades has become so biased that they focus on one single story and they black out all the other news. It used to be you yes. sit down, you'd get the world news, then the no. Uh, national than the local it's not yeah. the same way when it was just broadcast no. tv now the satellite tv they, they focus on just one or two topics and they're 24 yes. 7 on it yes and they, they don't seem to have uh, anywhere near the kind of um, uh, infrastructure in place abroad like they used to have i mean all the big organizations you know the the broadcast network cbc uh cbs abc and so on they they had um major major bureaus in in every capital of the world um with lots of resources and you, you had really in-depth reporting from them um, nowadays you know there's like one guy in jerusalem that covers everything from iran to morocco you know and and it's just it, it's it's just not good uh, you don't you, americans are misinformed i would say and also simply not informed. You know, if it's not done in a 140-word uh, tweet, people are not going to pay right. attention to it. And, right. and we used to get where you used to teach uh, in the civics class. We called it social studies. You used to teach a world yes. history. So you knew yes. where the founding of some of these these issues are. But today... Our students coming out today have no idea of the history that has given rise to a lot of the conflicts across the the globe. Well, that, that I mean, history is, is honestly speaking, is, as a father to two daughters, one of whom is a, an attorney in Boston and the other is a university student, and uh, one of them went through public schooling in in, in Boston, Massachusetts area, and the other in um, started in Boston and finished up in uh, Nova Scotia, Canada, and. You can, I mean, they just don't teach history anymore. It's, it's um, uh, actually, uh, my, my second daughter went to a private school, and that was a little bit better. But in public schools, it's um, 100% political, and it's completely about things that kind of don't matter now. Like, for example, um, you know, First Nations, and, and, and there is a place for that. But the world today is not very much influenced by, you know, Native American history it just isn't i mean it's just a fact uh the world today is influenced by things like the roman empire like um 
what happened in Judea 2,000 years ago, like what happened, you know, during the Reformation in Europe in, in, in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance. That, that's what shapes our world. If you don't learn anything about that, you basically are handicapped. You cannot function in the world today. And, uh, you know, actually my daughter who went to BU Law School, um, she was really handicapped by not learning that history. She didn't know what socialism was, for example. And, and, and that's why I understood that, you know, my, my other daughter would not go to, to, to a public school because I, w- I just didn't want to handicap her like the first one was handicapped. And, you know, and she did very well. She's mm. doing very well now. But she really had to struggle because, as, you know, and a lot of her classmates did go to private schools and parochial schools, and they had much, especially in the humanities, they had much, much more actual usable knowledge than, than my daughter got going to one of the best public schools in all of the U.S. and in, in a very wealthy suburb of Boston. So it's unfortunate. Yeah, it's, it's funny because here, you know, we've got a country that's founded uh, based upon history that goes back hundreds upon hundreds of years before the first settler came here. And you know, right. where does our, our constitution, the foundation of the constitution come from? English common law. The Declaration of Independence was based upon English common law. And it was a king that, I I always forget his name because he has such a weird name, Um, King Harold, I believe it was, that actually put down in writing what the English common law was. The right for us of self-defense was written into English common law. The right for a trial by by English common law. And you yep. know, there's a university upstate New York where you know it's King Harold University, <laughs> That's right. and That's right. yet people don't want to recognize this. And it's funny because no. when I I told someone uh, that you were being a guest on the show, and the quip came back is if you want to know the truth about socialism and communism, don't ask someone who fled from it. Ask the college student, the 20 year old college student. They can tell you more about really? socialism and, and <laughs> communism. <laughs> <laughs> it was, of course, it was sarcasm, but this is yeah, what yeah, we're yeah, being fed, right. though. Yes, it it it, 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 it guess, really is, and and yes, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's unfortunate, but it has real. It, it it's not it's not actually funny. It has real life implications. Like for example, you know, one thing that I'm, you know, as somebody who uh, grew up in my very early childhood in in the Soviet Union and then later in Israel. What I find, and then of course came to the U.S. as as as, a, as a, an adult after my Ph.D. degree. Uh, what I find interesting and a little bit disturbing about America right now is how complacent Americans are, in, you know, about what's going on in the country. Like, for example, just what yesterday, Jerry Brown, the governor of California, said that something had to happen to Trump, and that he had to oh, be yeah. removed. I think I'm paraphrasing oh, yeah. only very yeah. slightly, if at all. And that to me is like, okay, well, so now you have one of the, you know, the biggest political players in America, the governor of a state that's, you know, bigger in terms of its, uh, you know, GDP and everything else than most countries in the world. And he's substantially inciting people to murder the president. That's what he's doing. Right? I, 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 and I that, quote you, that. And I... I I, I reposted it saying, did Governor, Governor Moonbeam actually incite someone to assassinate a sitting president? Which is essentially I mean, what I he did. I mean, I think he did. Yes, he did. 
And, and, and the thing is that nobody even gets excited about it, right? Like nobody says, well, I mean, imagine if, the, like to, for me, like you're in North Carolina. So I, I would imagine that people in North Carolina, I would want the people in North Carolina to pick up the phone to their congressman or woman, to pick up the phone to their senator and say, you know, I know that you're not from California, but I want you to raise this in, in a Congress. I want you to raise this in a Senate. How come a sitting governor, not a private citizen, is literally calling for the assassination of a sitting president, you know, for him to be removed? Well, what, what does that really mean or for something to happen to him? You know, okay. I mean... I, I, I... I'm a little further south than North Carolina. I'm in South Carolina, where we're truly oh, have red blood here. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. But, you know, if, if they give a pass to Maxine Waters, who openly says That's it's right. okay to assault someone who is a Trump supporter, it's absolutely – and right. she backs it up, and she doubles and triples down on that. If That's they right. don't do That's anything right. about Maxine Waters, crazy Max – Madman. Yeah. Uh, why would yeah. we ever think that they would do something get about Governor Moonbeam? Exactly. I mean, and she's a smaller, much smaller fish. I mean, she has maybe a, a bigger mouth. Even that is questionable. But she's a small <laughs> fry compared to him because he's, you know, he's he's a major executive, right? I mean, this is not a joke. And 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 you know, there, there's a lot of people. And and you know, Scalise was shot, right? Nearly killed. By the grace of God, they survived. Uh, by the grace of God, other people there survived. It's not a joke. And yet, you know, what I find is that Americans, because I guess because Americans are substantially nice, that's one. And also because Americans are very, very far removed from having experienced in their lifetime any kind of serious hardship. And that's something that's something that's interesting to think about, because if you go back, let's say, 100 years, so something like in, let's say, the year 1900, the typical American was somebody who experienced as much hardship and, and witnessed as much, you know, warfare and famines and, and things like that as, let's say, a typical Russian. Because in 1900, you know, people were not that far removed from the Civil War. You had abject poverty, let's say, in Appalachia, in the, in the, in the Mississippi Delta, let's say, among African-Americans. And, you know, in Russia, you had wars. And, you had, and so there wasn't that much of a difference, let's say. But now, what Americans experience as everyday life is, has no connection whatsoever to, let's say, what Russians experience as everyday life. Americans are far, far removed from experiencing the real-life effects of political turmoil, you know, of, of, which, which can lead to civil wars and, and privations of, of unimaginable scale. I mean, the civil war in this, you know, in, in this country, in America, happened, you know, thank God, a long time ago. People kind of forgot about it. And there's been an unprecedented um, period of, of, of prosperity. And so I think Americans are um, kind of, um, they sit back, they say, well, that doesn't sound very nice, but they don't really perceive the danger in this kind of talk. Well, what oh, I think funny, is now up. <laughs> Go ahead, Kurt. What I think, what I think uh, is going on, uh, we do have people who are alarmed, but you have to remember uh, America right now is divided. You know, the United States, we have those who are, you know, supportive of this president, and then mm-hmm. you have those who, who hate him. I mean, purely mm-hmm. hate the man. And, yes. and you know, Republican Party. 
Um, yeah. Now, those on our side, we're, I wouldn't say we're not excited, but as much as we're not surprised by the antics mm-hmm. of the um, mm-hmm. left. Mm-hmm. And we know we're going to get our just due in November at the ballot box That's when right. we kick That's these right. people out of office. So, right. I mean, yeah, we, we don't like that kind of talk about, you know, assassinating our president, you know, even if they don't use that term. But we know what yeah. they mean. And the thing is, yeah. um, I think Trump is really just holding back until we we get beyond the midterms. We get yeah. hopefully more people in the House and the Senate, and he's going to go and really go after the deep state. I mean, yeah, it's really possible. Go. It's possible. I think when it comes to deep state, and today there was a story that Rosenstein, the assistant AG, I mean, this is from the New York Times, so it's, I mean, and Rosenstein denied it, but it was like that he was uh, thinking about wiretapping him, you know, actually wearing a wire when he met the president and trying to remove him via the 25th Amendment and things like that. And even if that is not true, um, you know, there's certainly, the deep state is very powerful. The bureaucratic state that was created, unfortunately, under primarily Bush, and then, of course, uh, the, the strengthened by Obama, it's, it's, it's not a joke. And, and Trump, Trump is somebody who, you know, I mean, let's face it, when you build in New York, like he has for decades, uh, you have to deal with people like the mob, I mean, legit, legit the mafia. And they're very powerful because they control all the unions and so on. And, and you know, Trump couldn't dictate terms to them because they were as powerful as he was. So I think he's quite adept at succeeding in in pushing his agenda, even in the presence of very, very powerful opposition. That's right. He doesn't get everything he wants, but he gets the main things he wants. And that's kind of, I think that's his basic approach to, you know, to the deep state. Like, for example, today he pulled back a little bit on this declassification, right? He said, well, you know, let's bring the... Uh, inspector general to look at it and you know and and that's because he got some very severe pushback that he couldn't overcome and that's just a fact i mean it's kind of like when you're you know when when the, when the you know the mafia that controls the plumbing union says listen we're not going to come to work so what are you what are you going to do you know you have to deal with them and that's what he's doing he's dealing with them but i just make one final point and that is that you're right americans those americans that support trump are very democratic in their nature. So they say, you know what? We're going, to, we're going to just sit and go have our dinner, go take the kids to the soccer game, and then, you know, we're going to uh, go to the ballot box and, 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 and say our piece. Unfortunately, sometimes when the opposition, like in this case the Democrats, are completely undemocratic. In other words, they don't believe in the democratic process and they do everything to subvert, to subvert it, Sometimes, you know, just voting doesn't quite work because, you know, it's kind of like entering into an arena where there are rules. If your opponent doesn't abide by those rules, then you have a disadvantage. And I think that's what's kind of happening here. Well, you know, you started off earlier before Curtis asked you a question, and I was going to lead you back to that and tie this whole thing together. Uh, The technology that we have today is so advanced, mm-hmm. especially in the United States. I mean, we are far superior mm-hmm. than any other nation in the world when it comes to this technology. Mm-hmm. And it's made mm-hmm. life so easy 
that it's easy mm-hmm. for us to say, well, someone else will take care of it. And God forbid mm-hmm. they're separated from their, their smart device for more than five minutes. They can't That's imagine right. what it's like throughout the rest of the world where they're deprived of this. I mean, China censors, yeah. Iran censors, you know, the, where yeah. other nations are not accustomed to this technology. They're accustomed to the hardship. And here we've become, right. I think, too soft. And a lot of this also ties into the fact of the loss of moral values. Less yeah. people go to uh, a religious service uh, today yeah. than, say, 100 years ago. So now oh, the question much is, can, can we marry tech, new technology and maintain religious views and good moral standards and still maintain strength? Yeah, and I, I know that's 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 a that's a uh, that's a big question. The, the question that has to do with um, you know things like um, church attendance, synagogue attendance, uh, those values that are that are around that. It's very hard to find meaning in life and to find your your foundation from which you can push off if 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 you don't have that, and that's a real that's a real problem. So now we have people with this high tech. They take to it, and now they're exposed to the ideas of socialism and fascism, and they're taught that they accept false information. But it's on, it's online, so it's got to be the truth. And now you have more permissive values, such as openly uh, same-sex marriages. We've got my own church splitting away. We're in a major court fight to maintain our buildings because we want to stay conservative for the teachings of Scripture. Where the other church says, "No, let's 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 allow same-sex bishops to openly marry in the church," where we know it's against Scripture, and yet they say, "Well, no, we're just modifying." So we're having a decay, and yet technology is assisting that decay, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think technology is technology is a very double-edged sword, I would say, because you know, on one hand, uh, it makes our it, it's unquestionable that it makes our lives lives easier uh, in many different ways. You know, like for example, for me, my, one of my I'm, I'm in Canada. Prince Edward Island, one of my daughters is in Boston, the other one is in Montreal. It allows us to video chat, to feel connected, and so on, and that's fantastic. I still remember back when I was young that even a long-distance phone call was, you know, prohibitively expensive, let alone, you know, a video chat or something like that. On the other hand, that very same technology, I guess what I would say is that it gives us, instead of creating communities, it creates a simulation of a community. I think people nowadays don't really, uh, many people, don't really experience what it means to be a part of a real community where you go to service, where you chat with people who are your neighbors, where you discuss politics, for example, and you can say things like, hey, did you hear this guy from California just, just say that something should happen to Trump? And the other, you know, after service, you chat, you talk. We don't have that anymore. And we have these communities where we select, selectively talk to people who are only of our own mindset, right? It's this, this you know, echo chamber kind of deal. And I think that's not healthy. And, um, and people become very isolated. Um, and much, much – and that, by the way, it ties to something quite interesting, which is the reliance of government – 
help on on various types of government welfare and 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 uh, government provided services in health and in, in 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 mental health and in other things because back in the day you you had people around you that maybe you lent some, them something when they needed it maybe you lent them a hand maybe you helped them in some way then when you need help they know that you're a good guy so they they're going to go help you right and that's how it used to work nowadays because we're so isolated there's nobody out there for us so we have to rely on the government you know if you're a young guy and you're working let's say as a roofer and you don't pay attention you put a nail through your foot back in the day somebody would take care of your family while you you were recuperating right but now you have to rely on the government to do that because there is nobody around you that's that that is a part of your real community that's next to you that knows you that wants to help you and so yeah so technology right. is um it's it's it, it has it's, its, it's good us. and bad side yes it is yeah it's it isolating is. and it's I, making Isaac us more Asimov dependent wrote, on the government exactly and isaac asmanoff wrote about this in irobot where people no longer had <laughs> interactions with each other and you thought you know he was crazy about it but this is coming to true fruition and i i challenge yes. people out there listening how many of you know who your next door neighbors are who lives across the street from you do you know their name do you know anything right. about That's them right. i mean That's when right. uh we had a storm coming through before matthew I noticed up and down the street that the lights were out in all the houses, and ours, our power yeah. went out. So I looked out, and I saw up and down the street, and I said, you yeah. know, I don't see anyone with flashlights moving around those houses. So I took, I had a spare yeah. box of storm candles, and I yeah. threw a whole bunch of them in my back pockets, and I started knocking on my neighbor's doors, saying, I see there's yeah. no light in here. Do you have any candles? Do you have a flashlight? Do you need anything? Can yeah. we help you? Because we were already, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, had, we had hurricane lamps, flashlights, candles. And several of my neighbors didn't even have a candle in the house. But this is yeah. what community used to be. But That's now right. we get behind That's our smart devices. You go out to dinner, and you see a family sitting there, and no one's talking to each other. They're on their, their device. Yes. Yes, that's, and that's, that's unfortunate. And and there is another divide I noticed also, in, uh, that is, um, uh, and that is the income divide, right? And that's also uh, driven very, very much by technology. So if I, I'll, I'll, uh, just anecdotally, but uh, my daughter, who's 28, and she's um, a corporate attorney in Boston. She works for one of the biggest law firms in America, and she's a third-year associate. Well, her income is in and around close to $300,000 a year. She's mm. 28 years old. She had two very, very good friends in high school, again, a nice, affluent Boston suburb where there's a lot of MIT professors live there and stuff like that. Well, these two girls are now young women, and I know them very well because they used to hang out with my daughter in our family room you know, all the time. You know, they didn't get a law degree. They went, they went to universities and good ones, but, you know, they, they just had some humanity kind of degrees in the humanities. Well, the two of them together have a hard time earning more than 100, let's say. And that's a huge, huge difference um, in, in, in how my daughter lives versus how these two, two other women live. Uh, and how it, they, they don't even eat the same thing. They don't shop at the same places. It's, it's almost like, you know, even what makes their bodies, like the, the molecules that, that make their skin and bones and lungs and brain, are different because they come from different places. Like for my daughter, Whole Foods, 
is cheap. She goes to the more expensive special country markets because she really likes like organic and stuff like that. Well, this, her, her fans can't even afford, afford whole food, let alone anything like that, right? I mean, she lives in a luxury building. and so, so there's so many differences now. And I don't think that used to be like that. I think, you know, if you go back to the 70s, somebody like my daughter would make probably in that money, I don't know, 60, 70. And somebody who just had a regular job would make, you know, maybe 30. So it would be maybe 50% more, maybe 100%, but not like six times more. And I think that also creates a lot of societal kind of stresses. Well, when when the the left decided to to destroy the middle class, now we have this huge disparity. What we need to do is bring back the the middle class, allow small businesses to prosper, and we will replenish the middle class. But they destroyed it. Um, I wanted to change the subject just a little bit because you had mentioned to me on the phone about this bombing in Syria. And I was reading the articles and everything. And some of your articles just tie into each other so well because you explained uh, why you felt that it was the Russians that did it and not the Israelis. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that that airplane that was the Russian uh, spy plane that was shot over Syria, I guess it's, it's two or three days now ago, uh, everybody agrees that it was the quote-unquote Syrians that did it, but there's an interesting backstory. So, so you, you could ask yourself, well, why is Israel blamed? Why are the Russians kind of blaming Israel? You know, if the Syrians shot it down, then, then I mean, they should take their case up with the Syrians. But there's an interesting backstory that is not really reported, you know, anywhere um, else in, in America, and that is that. The Russians don't let Syrians or anyone else operate their advanced weaponry. Um, in my in my piece for Tsarism, I wrote uh, that's McCain, you know, John McCain. He wasn't shot down by the North Vietnamese. He was shot down by the Russians who were operating their own equipment, in this case, uh, SAM-2 type missiles in North Vietnam. And there was a story about this uh, recently when John McCain was dying and was much in the news, the Russians published the, the, in the Russian media, and, and I read Russian, um, a story about the guy who shot down McCain. I mean, he was the commander of that battery that shot him down. He's not Vietnamese. He's completely Russian. Uh, he's dead now, and interestingly enough, he died from the same brain tumor that killed McCain. It's kind of a weird coincidence, but uh, about 10 years earlier. Anyway, uh, the Russians don't allow their clients to operate their equipment for a variety of reasons. One of them is that their clients are not sophisticated enough. You know, usually it's those kind of third world countries like Syria or North Vietnam. They they can't operate that equipment well. So what happened in Syria was a Russian command and control officer decided to okay that shoot down. And it was a Russian who pushed the actual button and when I served in the Israeli Air Force, I served in surface-to-air missiles, which are not substantially different than the one that shot this airplane, so I know exactly how it works. These are theater-wide weapons. It's not like a you know, bazooka or an RPG. You don't just shoot it when you feel like it. You need to have permission from command and control centers that have big radars. They knew what they were doing, and they knew that there was this big, lumbering kind of cargo aircraft with four huge propellers, 
And there were also Israeli F-16 fighter jets that are much smaller and more nimble operating in the vicinity. And they knew that there was a risk, and also they, they knew for sure that the Israeli airplanes would deploy electronic countermeasures but that would make locking onto them difficult. Whereas, you know, this lumbering plane that was on a stable approach to land would present a prime target. And nevertheless, they decided to shoot not one missile, but a salvo of three missiles and shot down their own plane. And uh, uh, that in and of itself is a tragedy, friendly fire and all of that. But, but be, there is something beyond that. And what is beyond that is that Putin's uh, situation in Russia now is quite shaky. The economy there is very bad. Uh, the, the sanctions uh, against Russia are working. They have to raise their pension age, that kind of stuff. People are close to being up in arms about it. I read a lot of Russian Twitter. It's very bad. And the only thing that Putin and his supporters can lay claim to is that he, he rebuilt their armed forces and now they're respected in the world. Well, but guess what? If there is a blunder like that, first of all, they cannot defend any of their installations of their own allies like Iran and Syria in Syria. Israel basically does whatever it wants there. So that's, that doesn't kind of work very well uh, to convince people that Russian military is that great. But then they go beyond that and they shoot down their own plane, killing 15 people on board. So that's a big, big loss of faith. That's a big egg on their face. And what the Russians are trying to do now is they're trying to coerce Israel, to like force Israel into saying that somehow they were at fault. So even though this was a Russian missile that shot the Russian airplane down, nobody argues with that, but somehow Israel caused it. And the reason they want to do that is, because, is, is for Putin to save face. And Israel is kind of playing along to some degree. It issued an, you know, issued an, not an apology, but like, a, you know, the Israel Defense Force said that it was sorry for the loss of life, that kind of thing, which is a rare statement. Usually they don't do it. But Israel wants to kind of cooperate to a degree. But that's really the story. It's just the Russians and Putin, really, needs to blame somebody, in this case Israel, for his own blunder because his political uh, situation in Russia is very precarious. Yeah, because you look at what's going on in Russia, and you've got an inflation going on, and the ruble had started to decline. That's right. uh, but the Russian right. bank decided to help boost the ruble by increasing the interest rate to 7.5. And that's, you think about that, that here in the United States, where it's something like 4.1 or something like that, not even. Okay. And okay. 7.5 is a high interest rate. Yeah. And then you now yeah. also have Chinese yen is in an inflationary state. And the Chinese are trying to back up the yen. So you, you're seeing yes. what was happening prior to World War One and World War Two, where their yes. currency, their national currency, was <laughs> dropping in value and in massive inflation. Yes. Yes, yes, it's 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 a very bad situation in Russia because, see, like Russians are not used to, to something to like to mortgages, uh, because in Soviet Union there were no mortgages. I can tell you that for sure. Um, how you got 
apartments in Soviet Union because we got one, my parents did when I was a young, very young child, you went through some sort of a long queue. You may, in my case, like my dad was a civil engineer and, some, um, and he was designing like uh, power plants and things like that. And so he was, because of that, he got a good place on the queue because people don't realize how poor Russia was and to many, in, in many ways still is. Like, for example, I was born in 1963. It was uh, 20 years, let's say, less than 20 years after the end of Second World War. The major cities, like the one I was born in Kiev in the Ukraine, were not rebuilt. There was an unbelievable shortage of housing. When I was born, we, my parents had a room the size of something like a Chevy Suburban in, a, in an apartment that belonged to some sort of a rich merchant before the revolution. That apartment had five families living in it, all sharing one toilet and one kitchen. And that's how I lived until I was five years old. When I was five, my parents finally got this uh, uh, two-bedroom, three-room apartment, <clears throat> private apartment in a different building, in a newly constructed building. And that was like the height of luxury uh, to get that kind of apartment. Uh, but it, cost, it didn't cost money per se, but it was just impossible to get. So the Russians are not used to this whole free market mortgage and interest rate and, so, and, and, and things like that. Um, and it's really hurting them, like the interest rate, the increase in interest rate. They don't understand what, where it comes from. When you read the Russian Twitter, you know, the most common thing that you read there is, the government should give us more. You know, they're all they're like children in a sense. They're looking to this government, which is like super parent, and they're like, and they're like, you know, little bird chicks with their mouth open, and they're like, give me, give me, give me. And that's what socialism does to people. <laughs> now, I mean, they don't understand the uniqueness of of the United States because here we were based upon the right of anyone no matter what your social status is to own private property this is an That's alien right. idea that it only recently took hold in europe it has That's never right. really taken hold in in the soviet union and no. now you know free russia it, it, throughout asia it, the i the concept of uh, anyone being able to own property is just not something they can comp- comprehend and the value Correct. that you get the ability to own your own property and not have any government interference with it. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, the Russians, you know, saying, oh, well, our economy is collapsing. Why? Because they don't understand the concept of the free market society. No, they don't understand. And their market is not free. It's completely manipulated. Um, uh, There is the corruption there is, you know, on levels that, you know, a lot of people who support Trump in America, I think, feel that America is now becoming uh, quite corrupt, and there is this unholy kind of alliance of big business, which is supposed to be private, but it kind of really isn't, because it's in bed with the big government, and so you have this big government, big business, and and, and it's bad. Yeah, it's bad, and, and, and it's really uh, a kind of a tax on all of us, and it prevents people like us who want to own small businesses, and think that, that really... Steals, steals our money or some part of our money. It's a, it's a tax on the middle class. But all of that, you know, completely pales in comparison to what, mm-hmm. what goes on in countries like Russia, let's say. Because Probably. there it's Curtis, just on a ahead. different level. 
Yeah, as as ahead, desperate Chris. as desperate as um, Russia is right now, they have formed a, a strong alliance with China. Now, okay. what you, what you say depends more on on the other, Russia on China or China on Russia. Oh well, I mean, one thing that to remember is that uh, Russia is, in every sense, except possibly the military sense a much, much smaller and weaker country than China. Um, you know, China has, what, 1.3 billion population. Russia has 10% of that, about 130 million. I mean, literally 10%. Um, you know, in terms of their global GDP, not necessarily per capita, but total. I mean, in any, in any metric possible, except maybe things like nuclear weapons and so on, Russia is a much, much... Uh, weaker and smaller player. So uh, what is happening now is that Russia is, and that's also on Russian Twitter and Russian media, and, and not at all, and that's a big story that is completely unreported when talked about that. Russia is basically selling wholesale uh, southern Siberia, which is the parts of Russia that border onto China. They're basically selling it wholesale to China for like, a, you know, a few cents on the dollar. And the Chinese are very, very demanding bosses. You know, like I'm not talking about Chinese Americans. I'm talking about Chinese Chinese. They basically want, you know, they if you work for them, they, they want all of you during those hours that you work. There is, you know, they're, they're very, very strict. And, you know, maybe, I imagine that maybe bosses like in America in the 1900s, you know, kind of in the height of the Industrial Revolution or maybe like that, you know, like cracking yeah. the whip. Well, the Chinese are doing it now, and the Russians are not used to it. The Russians are, you know, I hesitate to say lazy, but they're kind of laid back. They don't, they're not used to working too, too hard. They're used to taking breaks, you know. They're used to smoking the cigarette, they're, you know, even during work hours and so The Chinese are, you know, they don't like that. They, they don't get that. And so what's happening is that, uh, and plus the Chinese, you know, the Chinese are the worst things that they, for the environment that ever happened, right? I mean, they clear cut things. They, they, so they're clear cutting the Siberian forest. Uh, it's called the taiga. It's like a, those primordial forests. They're clear cutting them. They are uh, ripping everything that can possibly ripped out of the ground. All the managers are Chinese. The, 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 Dirty work, the grunt work is all done by Russians, um, and it's all super corrupt because the Chinese are basically bribing the local officials to get this, that, the other thing done. And um, the dynamic between Russia and China is more and more becoming like China is the overlord and Russia is the vassal state. Um, I don't know that that's a good thing for the U.S. It's kind of like how it has to be because how China is much more big, bigger and more prosperous but but then you also have to and I'll finish with this thought that the Russians may not be the most entrepreneurial uh, hard working people but when they set their minds to it they're among the greatest warriors that this planet has ever seen and if you get them you know and we, we saw that in the second world war when they kind of kicked Hitler's behind 
And by the way, both of my <laughs> grandfathers fought, were, fought and were killed in that war fighting the Nazis. So, uh, you know, so if, if Russians are pushed beyond a certain point, uh, there can be a very, very dangerous situation there, uh, actually, because, um, yes, they're economically weak. Yes, there is not many of them. But when they kind of set their mind to it, they can they can uh, uh, they can be a very very powerful military um, you know or military force. And so uh, it, it's an explo- I think it's a, it's actually a very explosive situation in that in that kind of alliance between Russia and China. It's always been an unholy alliance between Russia and China. There was always a a, a tugged war play between them. You know, all through prior to the Soviet Union, um, over land over rights and everything else Uh, but now that we see them closer in bed together i don't see a very good outcome coming at the end as you said you know they are a prideful people and as the oriental mind has it that you work for one company for the rest of your life and you don't go anywhere else and in china when you have a company the company is not privately owned it actually has ties directly into the military and to the the government uh politicians so when you say that well this chinese company is coming to the united states you should be asking yourself well who in the ownership of that company either is a member of the political government or a member of the military hierarchy so you're you're not getting a private company so you know you've got the military with their hand into russia yeah Yes, yeah. But, you know, I think that one of the things that are also kind of, I think one of the things where a lot of people on our side, a lot of Trump supporters, and especially, especially actually the so-called never-Trumpers, you know, one of the things that they, the, this this often repeated line that, oh, this is a private company, like Twitter, for example, okay, so you can't tell them what to do because they're private. Well, I think that's a big mistake, because you know, if you if if you go if you like a certain place that that makes great pizza and it's you know this and that guy maybe some guy and his wife, that's private. I totally agree. That's private. They should make their pizza. You know, whatever whichever way they want to make their pizza, and either people will buy it or not. But when you talk about companies like Amazon, like Google, like Twitter, like Microsoft, these companies are not private, not only because you, anybody can buy their shares. That's, another, that's, that's fine. They're not private because they are so deep in bed with the government. They have, you know, these extremely heavy government contracts often, uh, like Amazon and, uh, and, and literally the CIA, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, they are not private. They are kind of a hybrid between government and and private if not straight up government so i think conservatives have to be very careful when they kind of lump together you know your local car garage and amazon okay or even some company that may be publicly traded you know but uh, you know making some auto parts or something like that and amazon or google it's not the same animal it's 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 and conservatives you know often and especially those like principled conservatives which i think are among the more dangerous type of political animal in america um they you know that's that's an oh it's a private company leave it alone well not really Uh, it's just not true 
and um, you know, I, I think that American companies of this of that type, like like those I mentioned, are just very adept at manipulating and hiding what they really are and presenting this front of, oh, we're just a private corporation or a publicly traded corporation, but we certainly are not government. It, it, that's just simply not true. And, 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 and people have to start waking up to the fact that in America, like in Japan, like in China, not necessarily to the same degree, big business is big government and big government is big business and together they are one big undemocratic unelected you know um, entity that in america is becoming progressively more and more inimical to small business to middle class and to the kind of people that elected trump people who substantially want to live their lives in a free way, you know, make their own choices, and and those big corporations don't like it, and that's I think that's the that's the real struggle that we're seeing in America today. And that it is because you know, growing up, we used to have a large company, say like Colgate or one of those, and they would be basically yeah. apolitical. But you knew that the that's leadership right. of that company usually had a conservative bent. You know, let me do that's my right. business the way I want to. I don't want government right. interfering. But something yeah. changed. You yes. know, under the Bush administration, under the Carter administration, then the Bush it went further. The company started to become more and more liberal. And I remember yeah. I was working for America Express Business Travel Services, and they were asking about, well, you know, do you want a portion of your paycheck to go to a charitable contribution? And they would list the contributions, and I began to look at this list. And I'm thinking, this is not the same American Express I knew 10 years ago. If they yeah, offered yeah, these yeah. companies as a charity, where are the companies yeah. that have a conservative bent? But, Baruch, we're run, we have run out of time. We had so much sure. more to talk about. I have not even gone through half of the stuff that I wanted to speak with you. <laughs> Got to have you back on, have you back on real soon. Uh, because there's so much, to, and I wanted to talk to you about Alex Soros being involved in the Trump administration, and that's going to be a whole nother show. So yes, <laughs> I'm going to have yes. to let you I'll know. I'll be more than happy to come I back. See, all right, well, I'll get a hold of uh, you and uh, we'll work something out because it probably will have to be next okay. month because I'm booked up through the end of the month. People can find Absolutely. you at zarism.com. You're known as the high-tech traditionalist. Uh, right. You work with El Todd Wood, a good friend of ours and a good friend of the show. So yes. thank you for yes. all you do, and God bless, Brooke. Thank you very, very much. I had fun. Thanks. Take care. All right. Bye. Uh, check Bye. out his website, zarism.com. Um, and let's bring on our next victim who has been a, a previous guest of the show a couple of times and had a pleasure sitting down and talking to him face-to-face up in Myrtle Beach back in January. And he's actually better looking in person than his pictures. So let's welcome aboard <laughs> John Bondolo. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon. Thanks John, you with us? Uh, okay, great. Yeah, hey, listen, I heard you have a new TV show. Congratulations. Tell us about what, what that is. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, the new show is on uh, WVWTV.com. It's part of Worldview Weekend, where we have our radio program. Uh, we do a 30-minute program each week, uh, a pre-recorded uh, program. We involve the team in, the Understand the Threat team, and uh, it's great. The show we've uh, 
the first uh, season we had 12 episodes. This next one we have 12 episodes. We're currently airing the last two episodes from the first season online, and then the next 12 will be uh, uh, starting up probably within about a uh, about a month. So we're really excited about it. Wow. And how's the viewership on that? Uh, well, so far the, the metrics are looking good. It's been increasing, and uh, we are grateful because uh, the radio show really has helped feed the uh, – um, the, the TV show because the radio show has got a uh, very good uh, listenership. And so a lot of those folks clearly, um, I was just a guess are, you know, c- coming over. Uh, I'm guessing it's a lot of the same people, but uh, the TV shows are really good. The, the first 12 focus on the Muslim brotherhood, how they came to the United States um, and kind of the history behind it. These next 12 are digging into specific current, events, how they're doing, what they're doing, where they are, and where we are in the Islamic movement in general. So um, it's, it's been a lot of fun doing them, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that it's just another way to share the, uh, the information about real threats with the American people. You know, it's funny because I, I was someone that was absolutely uninformed, I would say, about eight years ago about Islam. I was just beginning to... Uh, opened my eyes when uh, at the uh, South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention, I ran into Tom Trento. And I remember the book that you co-authored with him. Matter of fact, I had two copies. I gave one away, um, Sharia, The Threat in, uh, to America. And it opened up my eyes a lot. But you also have a new book that had just come out, Raising a Jihadi Generation. And we've had jihad and uh, terrorist camps training camps in America for more than 40 years, and no one has known about it, or people have, but just never paid attention to it. Well, that's correct. And one of the, the I think, the greatest problems we're facing uh, in dealing with the threat is the ignorance of the threat. On the one hand, and then once you realize that there is a threat, uh, realizing how bad it actually is, and then once you realize how thick the network is here and how bad the threat is, you realize that people in leadership have been utterly culpable and unwilling to do what it, what's required to take care of the threats. And that's, that's where we find ourselves today. You know, well, it's the Muslim brotherhood is so entrenched. It started off with care, which is the a civilian arm of the Muslim brotherhood and the takia that was going on. And when they were trying to say, well, this is how the FBI should approach, you know, Muslims. Uh, and they actually rewrote the FBI handbook. Uh, they rewrote the CIA, the Homeland security handbooks. They recently in a court battle forced NYPD to take out of their patrol guide, a whole section dealing with Islamic terrorism. I mean, I was on duty in February of 1993 at the 9-0 precinct when the World Trade Center was hit the first time. I remember guys running out the door to respond. Uh, we, we've had the threat here, but defining it, we have been prohibited from defining it. That's right. And one of the things uh, for your listeners that I think is really important to just pause and wrap your head around is this all of this, all of the enemy 
uh, whether it's the uh, the 19 uh, uh, attackers on 9/11, the jihadis, the Muslims that attacked us on 9/11, the Boston Marathon bombers, the Muslim at Little Rock, Arkansas, who killed Private Andy Long, Major Nandal Hassan in uh, Fort Hood, Texas, the Uzbeki Muslim who uh, attacked people in New York City on a bike path with a rental truck killing eight and wounding others. Um, any one of these events, the young man at the Fort Lauderdale Airport, uh, Muslim, jihadi, San Bernardino, uh, Orlando, nightclub shooting, all of these individuals and the groups, the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, all define themselves as Muslims who are commanded to wage jihad uh, in order to establish an Islamic state under Sharia. Now, from a professional warfighting standpoint, professional response when analyzing a threat is to begin the analysis with who the enemy says they are and why they're fighting. If, if we had done that since 9-11, we would not be where we are today because we would see that Islam and its doctrine of Sharia is the threat. And we would analyze it that way. And then we would come up with solutions and we could reasonably and rationally then deal with, well, what do we do about Muslims who don't believe this and who don't want to wait? You know, how do we treat them? How do we deal with these things from a law enforcement perspective, an intelligence perspective, a hiring of government, people in the government? Uh, can uh, you, you could then answer questions or at least address questions that have been raised. Can a Muslim run for public office? Uh, how do we deal with that? What about hiring Muslims and giving them clearances inside the government? Is that Can we legally, uh, lawfully do that from a national security standpoint? If someone says, I subscribe to an ideology that calls for the overthrow of the government, uh, can they have a top secret clearance? Well, the answer is no. So then how do you address that? Uh, how do you deal with people who say, I yeah, I self-identify as a Muslim, but I don't subscribe to that ideology. How do you then proceed? All these questions can be answered, and we can have discussions about them, but you can only have reasonable discussions like that if you first understand what the threat is and that ISIS and al-Qaeda have never been wrong about the requirements of Islam. And once you are able to wrap your head around that, you realize the problem is much, much worse than our leaders have told us. But our leaders since 9-11 have demonstrated. Many, many of them are simply cowards. And they do not want to address the threat because of the fact that people call them names and people get upset. But the people getting upset are the people that are the problem or people in the community that are just grossly ignorant about the threat. And so we need to reasonably and rationally educate them and uh, help them to understand. But you can't do that if you don't actually know what the threat is and understanding it, which is why my organization is called Understanding the Threat. It's not that, you know what I mean? It's not that complicated. John. Nope. Just just think about Go this ahead, for Curtis. a second. You're the President of the United States. You get um, information that uh, one of your protectors in the Secret Service that's going to be on your protection team is a Muslim, would you feel comfortable with that? Because when you look on the history of these things, even recent history, 
we have um, our own soldiers being killed. They call it inside jobs. You know, the very people we're supposed to be helping in Afghanistan are turning on our troops, you know, shooting them in the back of the head. And and if you, you just look at Indira Gandhi, she was um, assassinated by one of her bodyguards. Would you trust as a president a Secret Service service agent that could be a mole? Right, and you're asking the right questions, and that's my point. But you can only ask these questions and have these discussions reasonably if we begin the discussion understanding that authoritative Islamic doctrine uh, teaches that it is obligatory for Muslims wage war against non-Muslims until Sharia is the law of the land. Now, that is a fact. That is an indisputable fact. There is no version of Islam that doesn't teach that. So people that are either upset with that or would argue against it are not speaking from a place of knowledge and understanding. And my challenge has been for over 12 years since I was in the FBI and through that time, So since really 2003, 15 years, please, if you disagree with that, that's fine. Show me one book of Islamic law or one Islamic school textbook that is used in Islamic schools that teaches about the requirements and the duties of Islam that does not include jihad and does not explain to the 10-year-old children that jihad is warring against non-Muslims that is physically confronting evil and wrongdoing. And that's a quote from a 12-year-old, from a book for 12-year-olds. It's the most widely used textbook in U.S. Islamic schools. And, of course, the answer is always some sort of adjective to describe you that's derogatory instead of answering the question. There is no answer to the question. There is no version of Islam that isn't that. So to your point, yeah, if somebody is a Sharia adherent Muslim, then they are a threat, and they should not hold a position in the government, certainly not inside our national security apparatus, and certainly not protecting the president of the United States. You know, it's it's funny. We've had some people who are, quote, moderate Muslims. And, you know, when when you try to have a conversation with them, I said, if you try to modify Islam in any matter, any which way, try to reinterpret what jihad actually is, you become an apostate and subject to a death sentence. So you can't reform Islam, so why stay with the Islamic religion? And to a person, no one can answer that question. Well, I think they can answer the question. In, in most cases, even if they don't want to live under Islam, once they're in it, I mean, the system is built that you just simply can't leave. Uh, and even Yusuf Al-Qaradawi, who's one of the leading scholars on the planet and uh, the leading Islamic jurist for the Muslim Brotherhood on the planet, has said it's because of the laws of apostasy that Islam has remained. I mean, Islam would never have survived the centuries because it's barbaric. Sharia, Islam's doctrine is barbaric. It's evil. It requires people to be crucified and stoned and limbs cut off of them. That's the requirement of the law. It has always been the requirement of law because, as you've said, uh, this, is, this is what it is. There's no reinter- So to reinterpret Islam 
for them to have some sort of, and I'm going to use this word because people use it, it's absurd to use it with regards to Islam, but a, quote, reformation, that means that either the Quran is wrong, which means Allah is wrong, and to suggest that is a capital crime, it's actually part of the law of apostasy, or you're saying Muhammad is wrong, which is a violation of the Islamic law of slander and apostasy, which are both capital crimes. So uh, there is no chance for reforming Islam. And until we actually live with the reality, we are grinding our wheels and losing the war. So you have to begin coming up with solutions that are based in reality, not fantasy. And that right there has been the problem for 17 years. For 17 years, the United States government, contrary to our own warfighting doctrine, has not identified the threat. Islam's the threat, Sharia is the doctrine. Now, individual Muslims, you got it, that's a different story. But again, you can't have the discussion until you understand what I just said is true. It's always true, and it's never not true. Now, you mentioned the word reformation, and I had someone throw that at me, and it says you don't understand what the reformation was then if you're using that term, because what Martin Luther found was that the Christian faith was not the problem. It was the church. The church had lost its way. And Martin Luther said, let's go back to the scripture. Let's go back to true Christianity as taught by Christ and create a new church because the old church is bad. Now, here in Islam, you cannot separate the church or the mosque from the teachings of Muhammad. Both are bad. So you, know, you cannot reform that. You must destroy it and start anew or find a Christian faith or Judeo faith or some other faith in which to switch to. So you cannot have a reformation at all in Islam. It's impossible. Yeah, uh, I heard someone argue once that they actually had a uh, reformation and it was the apostate wars after the prophet died when people started leaving Islam and uh, they were all killed. That was your reformation. When when you go back, <laughs> if you'll notice, in the last 50 years, as excuse me, as Islam has been uh, spending Saudi Arabia, uh, Oman, the UAE, uh, Iran, spending billions of dollars in building mosques and Islamic schools all over the planet, they are teaching Islam. Oddly enough, Islamic schools teach Islam. And when they teach Islam, under penalty of death in the law of apostasy, they have to teach what Islam is. They cannot teach. A Muslim cannot teach another Muslim anything about Islam that's not true. And when we have broken open elementary school, junior high, and high school textbooks in Islamic school all over the world, they all say the same thing that ISIS and al-Qaeda says, which is what Islamic doctrine is, which is Sharia. It's not that complicated. The question is, how have we been so stupefied and rendered so catastrophically clueless at the leadership level in the West that instead of doing due diligence and just opening a book of Islamic law and reading it, and going, oh, look at that. You have to be immediately killed if you leave Islam. Oh, look at that. A parent can kill their child or grandchildren for no particular reason whatsoever, and there's no indemnity for them doing that. Isn't that interesting? Oh, homosexuals have to be killed. Oh, adulterers have to be stoned. 
And all of a sudden you see that everything that ISIS and al-Qaeda says are requirements are actual requirements, that jihad is legally defined as warfare against non-Muslims and is obligatory under certain conditions. When there's a caliph, there are certain conditions. And when there's not a caliph, there are certain conditions. And there you have it. And there's, it's not, it's, you read it, what shocks most people when we train them and we use the materials that they are using in U.S. schools and mosques, you see that it is crystal clear. And then the question becomes, well, that means that all of our Islamic advisors are lying to us because in 17 years they've never mentioned any of this. And they are lying. Mm-hmm. And we can go down the list by oh, name of all those at the federal level. I mean, this is where we are. Well, that's that's one of the things you do with your website, Understanding the Threat, is offering local law enforcement actual training. Because law enforcement is completely unaware of what the truth is. And perfect example, absolutely perfect example you have up on your website about the mall security and Sharia law in the uh, Mall of the Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota, and what they did to Pastor Raman Parsa. Uh, that is a perfect example of the ignorance of law enforcement to the Constitution as well as to the truth of Sharia. Well, that's right, and I would love to do an investigation of that and find out who were the mall security. Were they Muslims or were they non-Muslims? Were they ignorant or were they actually imposing Sharia law? Because what happened to him by him getting arrested and put in handcuffs and taken to a police station for speaking place, that's the imposition of the Islamic law of slander because the Muslim woman working at the coffee shop in the story, uh, in, the, uh, in the account, she was offended because it was a Christian pastor who was a former Muslim from Iran who was talking to a group of Muslims very peacefully, and they were engaged in the conversation. And they were curious. Oh, you're Iranian, and you left Islam. How does that work? And then he started explaining it, and they were listening. And this Muslim woman overheard it working in the coffee shop and blew her, blew her lid because she knew that what he was telling them could draw them away from Islam. And so she has a duty under Sharia to stop that, and she did. And the police, the mall security first, and then the local police obliged and arrested him. This is, is so outrageous and so egregious. I mean, this is the stuff revolutions are made of right here. And uh, the fact that we're tolerating this in America is just appalling. And we have leaders on both sides of the polit- political aisle defending this kind of nonsense. You know, it, well, John. It, it's amazing. Go ahead, Curtis. Yeah, I, I mean, when you look at um, Clinton and um, all the Somalians he let in, and they went to Minneapolis, and they created a lot of trouble there, you know, crime and, and being on the welfare rolls and, and, you know, just being anti-American. And then, you know, you look at some of the other administrations, my question is this, um, in your your eyes, which administration is most responsible for creating ISIS? Um, well, I wouldn't subscribe an administration uh, that is 
responsible for creating ISIS in the way that I maybe you're asking the question. Let me answer the question and then you can you can ask a follow-on to, to see if I've answered it. Um, Islam requires jihad be waged against the non-Muslim community until Sharia is the law of the land and a caliphate and Islamic State is established under one man who is the caliph, the ruler of the caliphate. Uh, all Islamic law requires that. It's the whole purpose of Islam is to establish Sharia all on the, on the earth uh, through all means possible, and uh, the vehicle is jihad, which is total warfare. It's not just using guns and mortars and uh, artillery and planes and such. It's jihad all across the border. It's propaganda. It's subversion. It's counterintelligence operations. It's all of it. And so um, that's the first part. So ISIS, the Islamic State and al-Qaeda and other groups, Hezbollah, Hamas, Abu Sayyaf, uh, Boko Haram, uh, all of those, um, all are created by Muslims who are doing what they're commanded to do. Now, in Sharia, it says that jihad is a communal obligation, meaning it's an obligation upon the whole Muslim community. But if uh, people in the community fight on behalf of the community, like ISIS and al-Qaeda, then the burden to the rest of the community is relieved. Now, there are exceptions to that. Like if the battle is going on in your neighborhood, you're required to fight. There are times when individually uh, Muslims are required to wage jihad, and that's all spelled out in Sharia. Um, now, with that said, so the Islamic community is responsible for uh, Islam the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda and all these other groups being formed, and the Islamic community, for the most part around the world, supports them. They may not support their tactics, but they certainly support uh, in large numbers, based on a number of polls, uh, they support uh, the objectives. Um, now, that being said, uh, this was going on under President Clinton, under President Bush, but it got George W. Bush, but this got significantly worse under President Obama's administration, where uh, we actually, if you look at it like this, of the leaders on the planet that had their boots on the neck of the Muslim Brotherhood. We have essentially, we took them all out. Saddam Hussein, we executed him. Muammar Gaddafi, the Obama administration, executed him. Mubarak, Hosni Mubarak, we worked with the Muslim, President Obama and his administration worked with the Muslim Brotherhood to remove him from power. Of the leaders on the, the four leaders on the planet, uh, the fourth would be uh, the Syrian leader Assad, who have been hammering the Muslim Brotherhood for long periods of time. We took three of them out. That did more to uh, raise up uh, the Islamic Jihad as much as anything else that we've done. It was absolutely catastrophic, and. Now we're fighting against Assad. Now, I am not in any way saying that any of these uh, four men are good men or moral men uh, or in any way uh, anything like that. What I am saying is we removed gate guards that were keeping the Muslim Brotherhood specifically 
which drives the larger Islamic movement, they were keeping them at bay. And we basically broke those floodgates open, and now we're wondering why things are getting so tumultuous. Uh, and that, there are, there are many reasons, but that is a huge reason in this war. Yeah, well, when you mentioned uh, that the community uh, must support jihad, uh, Gary in the uh, chat room rightly posted that the halal industry does a lot to that. So we, as, you know, the kafars, the infidels, have actually been supporting, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood and jihad by buying products that are halal. John, can you tell me why they need a halal Easter bunny from Cadbury? Can you, t- you tell me that? And uh, we're not allowed. You, you you have to say, well, the, whether or not this has GMO products in it or not, or if it's got, uh, what is that other one that everyone claims they're allergic to in it? They have to put down what the package is uh, or whether or not it's kosher or not. But if it's halal, there is nothing on the label to let the average American know whether or not this product is halal and whether or not they're supporting jihad. Well, that's right. Uh, and the, when you ask why is that, it's because uh, the focus is not offending Muslims. That's what we've been told. Uh, don't at all costs do not offend Muslims. So we've lost troops, as was mentioned, um, uh, troops who have been killed by indigenous Afghan uh, forces and Iraqi forces um, because, and we can't say anything about it. Uh, a military officer, an army, a marine, senior enlisted, or military uh, officer walks into a room and there's a, an adult male raping or having sex with a six-year-old, a 10-year-old, uh, you know, an Iraqi on Iraqi or Afghan on Afghan. And uh, the U.S. troop goes over and grabs a guy and punches him or throws him out. He, we have guys in jail for that now. This, this is, that's our government putting people in jail for this, for doing what I believe is the right thing, uh, which is protecting people that we've been told we're supposed to be protecting. Uh, but this, uh, this is a corrupt uh, setup. I mean, the, the national security apparatus is completely incapable of fighting and winning this war. Uh, and while Mr. Trump has, has with regards, I'm not going to address the, uh, all the success he's had in, you know, economically and domestically and trade and all that, I, uh, that's not really my bag, although clearly there have been some tremendous um, successes, uh, numerous. And in the national security realm, there also have been. With regards to this, uh, you know, we now have a national security advisor that, uh, that gets it, his chief of staff that gets it, and others. But uh, you're still surrounded by Republican establishment people that not only don't get it, some of them are batting for the other team. So it's not only that the halal issue is not understood, uh, Muslims that pay zakat, which there is required, it's obligatory giving, um, at a minimum one-eighth of all zakat collected in the United States goes to fund terrorism, what our law calls terrorism, and we're allowing it. And you could prosecute almost every mosque in the United States for doing this, uh, and we're not, because why? Because that would create trouble, and we don't want trouble. Uh, well, I, I want to enforce the law. And that's what we should be doing and defending the American people. So far, we're not doing that. Uh, and so it's, no, it is. I, the halal issue is an issue, but there's, there's so much more to it. 
Yeah. Anyway, take a perfect example. Keith Ellison, everyone's screaming at uh, Kavanaugh for an alleged assault that may have happened 36 years ago. Keith Ellison is getting a complete walk. Number one, because he's a Muslim. Number two, because he's a liberal Democrat. Number three, he's one of the hierarchy in the Democratic Party. Here he, they have him videotaped assaulting his girlfriend, raping her and beating her. We have him videotaped doing this. We have him using a... Uh, under FCC law, communications to threaten her. That in itself is another felony. And yet he gets a walk while Kavanaugh is being attacked. So we're being attacked uh, socially and politically by the Muslim Brotherhood in every single way possible. That's, that's absolutely right. And it's happening in so many ways. Um, and I, I appreciate the fact that you all are at least willing to stand up and and speak the truth about it and uh, promote the work of understanding the threat because we are the only ones in the country training police and citizens uh, on how to map out these networks in their neighborhoods and then how to deal with them depending on whether you're a police officer, a citizen, or a local elected official or whoever. So I'm grateful, and I just encourage your audience to uh, utilize us, uh, understandingthethreat.com, and and, uh, share it with others because we need to grow this counter jihad movement uh, as big and as fast as we can right now. Absolutely. And I know your time is short, but I want to thank you for joining us. And you know, I'm going to contact James to get you back on the show and congratulations on the TV show and congratulations on getting that new book out there, raising a jihadi generation that people can find at understandingthethreat.com or by going to Amazon. Yep. Thank you very much for sharing that. And uh, for you all, your work, uh, pursuing the truth. I really appreciate it and would, would be pleased oh, to you be know back me. on again. You know me. I'm a fellow gutsy Italian. <laughs> You're not going to knock me down. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you all very much. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Thank you, John. Have a blessed day. Enjoy yeah, your weekend. Care. John Gondalo. You too. Uh, check out his website understandingthethreat.com and uh, we've got someone that popped up into the studio so I'm going to unmute him because now it's Curtis it's just going to be like a little round table between you me and I just pulled cool Mike <laughs> into the play good afternoon cool Mike wow uh, good afternoon hey Mike <laughs> let me go somewhere where no one's around <laughs> what's up <laughs> Putting you in the hot seat, putting you in the hot seat. I mean, there's so much to talk about. And, you know, there's more and more stuff breaking on this Kavanaugh circus. No other way to explain it. Um, you know, the question is, is whether or not she's going to decide to um, testify or not. She's trying to set limitations on the testimony. And you said it earlier, Curtis, when we started the show, she wants uh, Kavanaugh to testify first, and then she will follow. But wait a minute, isn't that bass backwards? You know, you have the the accuser come forward, make the accusation, and then you have the person that's accused who has the right to face their accuser under the Constitution, yeah. then come and try to rebut it, refute it, or whatever. And then you have the battle back and forth to prove who is right or who is wrong. But she wants it the opposite way around. And what's driving me crazy is that everyone's screaming for an FBI investigation when it never was an FBI case. It was a local law enforcement case, and the statute of limitations passed a long time yeah. ago. 
Can we it's get any persuasion in this guy? She's lying. <laughs> She's just outright lying. She said she'll testify Thursday. The GOP better get some backbone here. To hear if she's not there Monday, the vote needs to be on Tuesday, and that's that. Uh, you know, sooner or later, the Republicans are so spineless. They're so gutless. Trump needs to really just take the bull by the horn here. Um, I mean, that's simple. She's lying. I mean, she's no different than and Duke Lacrosse, just the endless list of nonsense we see by at I mean, she clearly is one of them. And I'll tell you, the, the, the whole, what they want to do is they want to be able to say, look at all these white men who wouldn't let this victim get her day in court. <laughs> That's all they want. Well, you know, on Twitter, I actually, I actually saw somebody posted a picture of another student at the same time that um, – Kavanaugh's was going to school, and they look almost like twins. So could it be that she's mistaken? You know, that's a possibility it happened, but with the wrong person, or she's just outright lying. Exactly, exactly. And it gets even better, because Cory Booker was the one that was really pushing, the one that leaked memos and everything else over this whole incident. And, you know, he should be brought up on ethics violations to, to start with. But this was posted on um, American, I can't read it, American Action News. It was posted up on by Mobilist in Mobile. And the article uh, reads that while troubling if unsubstantiated, allegations swirl around Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat out of New Jersey, is facing charges of glaring hypocrisy by his own admission. Luca Michelonis at Fox News reports, the senator who urged the Senate Judiciary Committee to first let the FBI conduct an investigation after California professor Christine Blasey Ford accused the high court nominee of sexual assault over 35 years ago, once wrote an article detailing an instance where he groped a female friend. Quote, in New Year's Eve 1984, I will never forget. I was 15. As the ball dropped, I leaned over to hug a friend, and she met me instead with an overwhelming kiss. As we fumbled upon the bed, I remember debating my next move as if it were a chess game. Booker wrote in the student-run Standard Daily Newspaper in 1992. With the Top Gun slogan ringing in my head, I slowly reached for her breast. After having my hand pushed away once, I reached my, quote, he continued, Without explaining what he meant by Mark, our gropings ended soon, and while no relationship ensued, a friendship did. You see, the next week in school, she told me that she was drunk that night and didn't really know what she was doing, he added. Reportedly, Booker intended to describe his transformation from a 15-year-old wannabe player to someone others called a man-hater over his pro-woman views. And yet Booker considers the accusations against Kavanaugh serious, credible, and deeply troubling. Booker, in his own words, admitted that he groped a girl when he was 15. He was a juvenile. Statue of limitations probably have passed by now. And yet, the hypocrisy. Mike, is this not nuts? Well, it is. Cory Booker's background speaks for itself. I mean, whether we, we can go back to 
a million, not a million, but several cases. I think we remember way back when uh, they they have always tried to play the race card, the gender card, and this has been going on. Uh, let's let's think, uh, Annie. I think you're the oldest of the three of us, but let's just go back. However, Thanks. go back. Well, Thanks. let me ask you a question, Annie. When you were 18 or 20, uh, the one percent trickle down economics, uh, white privilege. Uh, it's the same type of nonsense. I mean, feminism, and it, it just doesn't stop. Fact of the matter is, half of the half of these uh, moron socialists have no idea what any of these things mean. They just repeat them like a little kid repeats when he hears things. But Cory Booker has been playing the race card, the gender card, and and it applies to everyone except Cory Booker. Not to mention when he was running the radio show, when he had his radio show on Al Jazeera, he always bragged about how he's uh, making headway in the U.S. as far as uh, with Muslim religion and on and on and on. I wonder what Cory had to say about Mike Nifong. I didn't realize he had a radio show. You're a little bit more knowledgeable about that, but I'd love to hear some of his old broadcasts to see, you know, what hypocrisy else pops up in there. You know, this drive to sink Kavanaugh has just become rabid. And the more we learn about this woman, uh, and the more we learn about this allegation that she doesn't know what day it was, what month it was, what house it was at. Uh, she claims she doesn't remember if it was a pool party or not, if she was wearing a swimsuit or not. There's so many things, so many holes in her story. And the fact that we're, the Republican leadership is treating it as something to be seriously looked at, I give them credit for that because they're not backing away from it. They're saying basically, bring it on, give us really substantial proof, and then we'll move. Otherwise, yeah, it's my my understanding that it's really just three Republicans, um, moderate Republicans at that, who are pretty much um, playing ball with the left on this matter. The rest want to go ahead and get this done and get the vote on uh, for the confirmation. But um, you know, this all all of this thinks to high noon. We we know it's a stalling tactic, and it's another means by which to. Um, discredit this man pretty much like and i mentioned this the other day um with herman king you know he had i think about four four women eventually came out of nowhere and then once their their job was accomplished you know he dropped out of the the race um they disappeared and you heard no more about it so you know i don't know how the democrats do this but they they have a lot of time on their hands to go find people like this you know, and I, I really, I think we should put an end to this stuff. You know, I mean, if she's lying, she should pay for it. You know, she should be adjudicated. You know, it should be, Mike, because someone brought this up. I was listening to, I don't remember if it was Will Cow or not, probably was, but one of the callers came in and said that in some jurisdictions, if you bring charges against someone or a lawsuit against someone and you lose, you pay. So this should be the same thing in this case. You know, how much tax money and dollars are being wasted on this allegation? If she ends up having the allegation proved to be completely false, she should be paying the taxpayers back the entire cost of this whole charade. That's right. There's a thought. And, and, and for her to have, have the nerves to dic- 
take the terms by which she would um, give her testimony. That's, I mean, we, we, we can't give these people that kind of power. You know, we have a, a decorum that we, we follow and a protocol, and she needs to follow that. She's the accuser. She needs to go first. She doesn't make, you know, the defender go first. She doesn't even know what the charges are. Like I said to you earlier before the show, it's like asking a, a baseball player to swing first and then we'll make the pitch afterwards. She's clearly... That's a good analogy. She is clearly one of ahead, them. Uh, she's just one of them. It's that simple. They have backups. But this is their whole life. This is how they do it. And they have... You know, someone's going to come forward uh, once... once uh, once Kavanaugh is adjudicated, someone's going to come forward and charge him with rape or accuse him of rape. Uh, this is just where they're at. Unless President Trump has an all-out onslaught, uh, well, now that they're releasing uh, to release this document, if the FBI deny him that, he needs to have those uh, leaders immediately fired and arrested and, and just take to the offensive. Because this isn't going to stop until all of a sudden these people are facing the same thing in reverse. That simple. I mean, Mitch McConnell... Absolutely. Uh, Mitch McConnell needs to go into attack mode. Well, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of Mitch McConnell because I still think he's more of a rhino than anything else. Um, but oh, yeah. But he's standing firm on Kavanaugh. He said, we will have the hearing on Monday, and then we will vote on him on Wednesday. And at this point, he is standing firm. So I got to hand him to that. When when he does something right, I'm going to applaud him. When he does something wrong, and then I'll, I'll I'll say something. But in this case, I think as as long as he stays and stands firm and follows through on Monday with what he said he'll do, you know, all the more for him. If he if he buckles, then shame on him. Shame on him for putting the American people and Kavanaugh and his family through this. It should have been handled a long time ago. And shame on Dianne Feinstein with the cheap tactics she used to bring this whole issue forward. You know, she knew about this back in July. The woman had hired an attorney already, had taken a polygraph test, had scrubbed her social media of everything she didn't want made public. And this was all done in July and August. Dianne Feinstein had everything in her hand in August, and she waited until until the hearings ended and in the 11th hour brought it forward. And I'm willing to bet she is the one that leaked all the information from it. She has an anonymous letter from an anonymous source with unsubstantiated allegations, and it's gone from that to what we have here today. It is disgraceful. All these people are anonymous. Let's go back to the day Donald Trump won the election. How many of these whatever stories are, contain anonymous people? Virtually all of them. The only one that doesn't is Stormy Daniels. I mean, if you stop to think about it, they're all anonymous. Well, she's used to yeah. um, being in the limelight, exposing herself. <laughs> oh, that's a bad pun. That That's a Robert pun. <laughs> <laughs> Trump needs to take to the offensive here. He really needs to go into serious attack mode. Just an onslaught. Attack, attack, attack. This way, when you turn on CNN and MSNBC, 
you have all these people that are sitting there defending themselves rather than taking to the offensive and bashing Trump or, you know, d- doing those type of things. They need to be on there saying, I'm innocent. I, you know, th- those type of things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, up in the chat room, uh, Gary has posted a link. Laura Loomer is telling them, uh, Tell the DNC to investigate uh, Keith Ellison, woman beater. Call 424-TELL-DNC. So thanks a lot for that, Gary. I appreciate that. But uh, I I just pulled up, and if I can print out her tweet, that way I have it for myself. I'd appreciate that. But um, it's it's rude. We we the people have to contact um, our elected officials and say, you know, hey, prosecute Keith Ellison, do an ethics violation on him within Congress there, Uh, contact not just the DNC, contact whatever state these incidents occurred into, and contact the Attorney General, contact the local law enforcement. Why hasn't this man been arrested and prosecuted? He in handcuffs. He physically and violently assaulted a woman. Not only that, it's a domestic violence case. It's not a case of a random stranger upon stranger uh, assault. This is an intimate domestic violence. And once domestic violence occurs, it does not stop until either the other person, the victim, flees the relationship permanently or they're dead. And this woman's very lucky to be alive. It's a very serious matter. That's true. What do you, what do you say... Well, I was going to say, how do you address? Let's let's download all the all the Southern Sense shows after, say, starting in 2017 to now. Every every show, twice a week, is about a new Trump issue, containing anonymous sources or uh, the rumor is on this or on that, and this op-ed piece. It, it, these are all completely made up. They're deep state. They're, they're just completely made up. And uh, next week, or no, even today, uh, is it James O'Keefe? That guy is going to uh, release an awful lot of information on how um, – is it James O'Keefe who's with the that group? Um, yeah. Do you guys uh, know Project Veritas. Yes. Yes, I had the pleasure of, of he, meeting him face to face and interviewing him face to face a couple of years back. Yes, James He is going to Good blow luck, something James. up, and he's going to blow something up. Um, videos apparently they they went into several federal offices and talked to people of high power where they admittingly talked about lying and cheating because they thought they were actually training individuals for a job. He didn't realize that uh, they were Project Veritas undercover journalists, and he's going to expose them. Now, here, there's another example where a guy says basically we're the federal government. We can't be fired. I mean, but the thing is, every week it's something. Every, every twice a week, it's a new smoking gun. This, that, this, that, they've all failed. That's simple. Yeah, I, I saw I saw some bits and pieces of that video that's going to be coming out, and it is frightening because it, what it did was it just said it's not just Peter Strzok and Page, it's not just the two of them that was saying, hey, let's obstruct, let's let's f them up, 
uh, however they were saying, if anyone saw or read the tweets between these two, um, uh, Philip McAleer and his wife, Anne, did a video. So check out Phil McAleer and uh, Anne. They've been guests on the show in the past. They did an actual um, re- uh, reactment of those tweets going back and forth. And it's shocking. Matter of fact, I think I may have that video up on YouTube under my channel. So if you go to the Southern Sense channel, if you're watching the show, look at the channel. And I believe that video is up there on my channel. And you look at these tweets, you're going, oh, my goodness, why were these people not fired once this was exposed? And it took them months and months, almost a year later after this was all exposed for them to finally be fired. Um, but now you have Project Veritas coming out with this other video, and it's proving that it's not just Struck and Page. It's a lot deeper, a lot deeper oh, than yeah. that. As a matter of fact, Trump is still trying to track down the anonymous member of his, his administration that said he is in one of the deep state working inside the Trump administration to F it up. And I hope they find that person and prosecute him for treason. Honestly, I really do. And it's, it's getting crazier and crazier. I have no doubt that all of this resistance um, is, is coordinated. I mean, you even have leaders in the Democrat Party who are saying proudly, I'm part of the resistance. Well, what resistance is that? You know, there must be some kind of organization, you know, or some kind of organized um, resistance to this president. So I don't know. We we have to expose these people. And like I said, if they did something wrong, um, treasonous or whatever, they need to be held accountable and adjudicated guilty and sent to jail. And that includes Hillary and Obama, if it comes down to that. And Bubba Clinton. You know, and Bubba. They're, they're talking about the Me Too movement. Hillary's talking about the Me Too movement and defending women's rights and everything else. And yet she ended up intimidating and threatening the women that Bubba Clinton assaulted. She had people go and beat up a, a, a neighbor of one of the victims because he knew what was going on. His his video camera movement on the premises where they were trying to intimidate the witness. You know, if yeah. you ever read uh, Roger Stone's books, uh, uh, what the heck was the name of that now? Oh, just I've got it on the shelf right behind me. We had Roger Stone on talking about that book dealing with the Clintons. And then there's follow-up book dealing with Jeb Bush. You know, the dirty laundry is out there. We're just not prosecuting it, which is disgusting. You know, we're supposed to be equal in the eyes of the law, and you have an elite class getting away with crime after crime after crime. And the deep state yeah. is there preventing the prosecution. Justice yeah. is if it was to you or me, Curtis, yeah, if it was you or me, Curtis, we'd be locked up faster than they can say S-H-I-T. They would be on our doorstep. Oh, wait a minute. I think I see a, a dark SUV pulling into my driveway. It's, it's cool, Mike. I'm glad that you joined us the last few minutes. Uh, I hope everyone has enjoyed the show. We had two great guests. I want to thank everyone that was in the chat room and also in the studio. But we're going to be back here on Tuesday. And Tuesday, we have Ken Timmerman and Jim Schreiner. 
Uh, Jim Schreiner has a new book out. Um, uh, is it Jesus Christ Enough Already? Uh, he's, that's his new book. And then at the end of the week, uh, next Friday, the founder of the um, Walk Away movement, the founder of the movement that's getting Democrats to leave the Democratic Party, Brandon Schreiker will be with us. And we've got a young yeah. kid, I believe he's 13, um, Miller, what the heck is his name? Miller Browning. He started a, a a program, Do Work That Matters, trying to do some good in the world. God bless this 13-year-old kid for taking uh, issues into his own hand. So I want to thank everyone for joining us. And, Mike, God bless you and hope to see you and talk to you soon. I'm leaving everyone with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. So, Curtis, I say until then, good night and God All bless. Right. God bless. Have a good weekend, everyone. Thank you.